This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash apps. You can find a reference of today's topics for today's topics in the read app at qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast Season 2. My name is Julie Arafay, and I'm the Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Our topic for today is high reliability, but wait, don't hit the off button just yet. I know this is a term that is elusive, and it's very much overused. So just listen for a few minutes, and I hope that you will find this podcast helpful. I want to start with talking about what high reliability is. High reliability is care that meets a standard and is evidence-based. It is delivered regardless of who is on the unit, what day of the week it is, or what time of day. When I look at my news feed in the morning, it's so hard not to click on <clears throat> these tabs, simple steps to lose weight. Uh, simple steps to look younger, or click on these three easy steps to organize your life. So when I thought about high reliability, there are definitely seven steps that can get you to high reliability in patient care. They're not necessarily simple, but they can be applied to any patient care unit, and they do lead to higher reliability when you do them consistently. So I hope they'll be helpful in your unit. I want to talk about what the seven steps are and then illustrate them in a case study. Step one, you got to have a checklist. And the checklist needs to be developed from evidence-based care and national standards. It's better if the checklist is one page. So it's not really a how-to list. It's more, these are tasks that need to be done and things that need to be considered list. It needs to be easy to read and easy to access. When you look at the checklists that pilots use, they don't have a lot of colors. They don't have triangles or rectangles or diagrams. They are basically linear steps in a process. So think about that when you're looking at checklists or templates for checklists that you want to use. Now, I've definitely been in units where the staff have come up to me and said, and we don't use checklists on this unit. And I understand that for a lot of people, when you use a checklist, it means you don't really know what you're doing or you haven't practiced enough. And I would, I would say to those people, you may remember everything to do in an emergency, but it's likely that not every single person on your unit can replicate what you can do. So unless you're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how does your unit get to high reliability? 
using a checklist is not a sign of a lack of expertise or skill or knowledge. Pilots who are extremely uh, experienced use checklists every single day. And checklists are extremely helpful for new staff, either people new to practice or new to your unit. So think about instituting checklists for OB emergencies. Step two, get an early warning criteria or tool on your unit. You cannot respond early and proactively to emergencies if you don't realize or recognize the early signs of deterioration. These are often very subtle, with the most common ones being tachycardia and tachypnea. If your unit is busy or you're overloaded that day, you can easily overlook these subtle signs or not lend them the importance that they need. One of the best quotes I heard when I was first getting getting aware of this sense of impending doom and giving talks about impending doom was by Dr. Stephen Ayers. He's a critical care physician. And he said, The weakest link in patient care is the tendency of the clinician to convince himself or herself that somehow everything will be all right. And I think that is uh, relevant in obstetrics. Step three, develop a lexicon for key events or findings. We've all heard the lexicon that pilots use. Who who hasn't watched a, a movie where the pilot has issued a mayday? Pilots know exactly what that means. Uh, the ground control knows exactly what that means. They also understand that certain letters can be misinterpreted. So they have actual words for the letters. And if you're talking about maternal early warning, that would be Mike Echo Whiskey. So some of the lexicon contenders I think we have in obstetrics are a lexicon to define just how urgent a C-section is. This can be very misunderstood on units, and if it's not clearly relayed exactly how urgent it is to get to the OR and start the surgery, then that can result in a decrease in reliability. Another example is maternal cardiac arrest. One of the hospitals that I've worked at, when obstetric code blue is announced, that means the code team, the OB rapid response team and the neonatal resuscitation team come to the room that was announced. So think about what would be good for a lexicon on your unit. Step four is role delegation. I remember analyzing video um, early in my career as a simulation specialist, and one of my colleagues who was analyzing the video with me said, the nurses look like ants running around the patient. And they did. So instead of ants running around or people running around putting out fires, I want you to visualize the pit crew at the Indianapolis 500. In less, in mere seconds, you get an oil change, you get a fill up, they wash your windshield, give you something to drink, and and reset your tires. So how how can you get all of that done in mere seconds? And the example is role delegation. You have to think about role delegation. And the closest thing I saw in healthcare to that 
pit crew at the Indianapolis 500 was a trauma team at Texas Children's Hospital. And this was the pediatric trauma team. In their trauma room, they actually have feet on feet. And if you, and each foot around the patient's bed has a role. Your feet have to be on feet to stay in the room in a trauma. All the supplies for that particular role are right there within an arm's reach of those feet. So it's very organized. And when you watch them work as a team, it's, it's, it's orchestrated, it's choreographed. There, there aren't errors of omission or errors of commission. People aren't duplicating tasks. People aren't forgetting tasks. It's extremely organized. So I think we can translate what they have done to our unit and think about how to organize care around the patient's room. And if you think about obstetrics, airway monitors, and room for the anesthesiologist, and assisting the anesthesiologist can be at the head of the bed. On one side of the bed, IVs and meds. The other side of the bed, maybe someone to assist the obstetrician or the midwife. There needs to be a documenter. And I feel strongly there needs to be a nurse leader or the reader of the checklist. That may be two roles, that may be one role, depending on your particular unit. Each unit needs to look at what they need, what their resources are, and how to best look at role delegation for emergencies. There also needs to be a strategy for leadership. If you think about the traditional way we think about a leader in healthcare, that's usually the physician or the midwife. And think about all of the things they do. If they come into an emergency, they're looking at the patient, they're trying to get report. They want to make sure they have all the supplies in the room, the right people in the room, everyone's doing the appropriate tasks, and looking at the patient. What are the things that that the patient needs? What's the next step for the patient? How is the, the patient's vital sign responding to their actions? That is an incredible cognitive load. And I think it's exactly why most of my physician colleagues do not like to be video recorded in simulation, because this is a relatively impossible task to do unless you do this every single day of your practice. Most of us, thankfully, do not have severe OB emergencies every single day that we have to deal with. So consider taking some of that cognitive load away from the physician. If the physician or midwife manages the patient, a nurse leader can manage the room. So what do I mean by that? When I talk about managing the room, that's the the nurse leader making sure that the right people with the right skill set are in the room. If you're looking at the checklist, you can make sure that all of those tasks that have to be done in the emergency are being done. You can anticipate next steps so that if, let's say, for instance, a uterine tamponade device is going to be placed, you can have all the supplies out, ready to open, and someone assigned to that task. So when the physician or the midwife asks for that equipment, it's already, the process has started. So it's a little faster in getting that equipment in their hands. Now, the other consideration for leadership 
is many times we have more than one leader in the room. So it could be that you're going to divide into a physician leader or midwife leader and a nurse leader. Or it could be that you have an anesthesiologist and an obstetrician in the room. And both are very intent on doing what they need to do. Let me give you an example. Uh, I was participating in a simulation where it was a a hemorrhage simulation and the patient was bleeding um, pretty substantially and the anesthesiologist had added pressors and the patient's vital signs had gone up accordingly. But the obstetrician had no idea that pressors had been added and were supporting the vital signs So in the obstetrician's mind, the patient's vital signs were stabilizing, but in reality, they weren't. So this is just one example of why it's so important if you've got two different physicians managing the patient that they are communicating and having some kind of a strategy for leadership and communication, which leads me to step six. Step six is communication. And I always like to talk about three things. Number one, getting information when you come into an emergency. Are you ready to listen to what someone is saying? Or are you a person when you come in the room that's looking at the patient? Who's in the room? What does the patient look like? So you may not even be ready to hear a report. And I I advise nurses to say, I have report. Are you ready? So that they that it's clear, okay, this is report. If you're doing something else, I'll let you let me know and I'll give you report when you're ready to hear it. In some situations, do you even need report? If they are compressing a pregnant woman's chest and ventilating for her, does report matter? You have to make sure ventilation is correct, perfusion is is uh, being done, and does, has the patient been hooked up? Do you know what the, the cardiac rhythm is? There's nothing in report that's going to change anything you're doing until you get those three things solved. So it may be that if you're coming into an arrest situation, you want to make sure that all the tasks are done and then get report quickly. Closed loop communication is one thing we talk about a lot, but in my opinion, it can be a good thing gone horribly wrong. If someone comes in the room and starts announcing everything they do loudly, and as our stress level rises, we tend to speak louder, the noise level in the room can be incredibly loud and will interfere with communication. So, Think about what needs to be communicated. And one thing that definitely needs to be communicated are medications. So consider completing your task and not announcing everything that's being done unless it is something specific like medications or obviously something like defibrillation. So think about what needs to be announced to the room. And lastly, something that the OBSIM team at Lucille Packard Children's calls the recap. And the recap is when you quiet the room, and it can be done by anyone, quiet the room, 
quickly update everyone on what's been done, what the next step is, so that you get everybody on the next page and everyone's ready for the next step. The recap is really important because in the earlier example where the anesthesiologist is giving vasopressors and the OB is just trying to stop the bleeding, you can call a recap and let everyone know what the current status of all the activities being done for the patient are. You can also call a recap when something is about to happen, when you need to move, when there needs to be another step in the process of the checklist. It's important not to call a recap right, let's say, for example, when the anesthesiologist is intubating because they're not going to be able to listen to you. So it's important to pay attention to what people are doing, but the recap, again, can be called by anyone. And it may be a strategy if you've only got one anesthesiologist in the room and one obstetrician or midwife in the room, it may be your strategy that the nurse leader calls the recap. Our last step is debriefing. And debriefing needs to occur after these OB emergencies as soon as possible. Same criteria apply as any debriefing. You want to make sure it's confidential. You want to make sure that what you're um, that what you're saying is going to be non-discoverable. You want to have some kind of a way to gather data and then report it. So a lot of people will say, well, we can say what went well and what didn't go well. Um, you know, for me, it's really important that this be short, sweet, and to the point. When I advise people on how to do after-event debriefings, I tell them to have someone set a timer. Do not go over 10 minutes. I also um, pass along advice given given to me by the NASA shuttle debriefers. Basically, instead of asking if communication was good, you can ask about the events of the emergency. Because if there is a problem with the event of the emergency, you can usually trace that back to either a problem with communication, role delegation, or a confusion with the leadership. Let me give you some examples. Did you have the right people in the room at the right time? Were there issues getting or giving medications or fluids? Was there issues with equipment, supplies, or how you use them? Did you have issues getting the information you needed about the patient, their history, their lab values? Did you have any other issues come up that we haven't covered? Were there any issues getting or giving blood? Does this case need a more detailed review? Or does the staff need a critical incident stress debriefing? So if you ask those questions, very very. Uh, specific, very to the point. Um, If you've got issues, most of the time you can trace that back to a team skill or a process issue, and that can be looked at and resolved. So we have seven steps. They are maternal or uh, early warning criteria or tool, using a checklist, role delegation, strategy for leadership, developing a lexicon, clear communication, and debriefing. Now let's look at a patient case that illustrates how you can use these. 
Our patient is 32 years old. She's Gravita 2, Para 1001. First pregnancy was uneventful. Past medical history is significant for sickle cell trait. And current pregnancy, GBS positive, but no other issues. Her prenatal labs were all within normal limits, and her hematocrit was 37.7, and her hemoglobin 12.7 the last time they tested antepartum. She was admitted to labor and delivery at 41 weeks for cervical ripening and induction following a deceleration on the fetal monitor during post-dates monitoring. And this was early in the evening. Her cervix was one centimeter long and the presenting part high. Her vital signs were stable. Temperature was 98.6 or 37 Celsius. Blood pressure 132 over 74. Pulse 88 respiratory rate 18. She was placed on the fetal monitor and had a category one tracing. About an hour after she arrived at the hospital, prostaglandin gel was inserted, uterine contractions were irregular, and she remained category one tracing. She spent the night. Early the next morning, her vital signs are still stable Um, temperature unchanged, blood pressure 114 over 63, pulse 70, respiratory rate 20, fetal heart rate category still 1. Her cervix, though, had changed 2 centimeters, 50% effaced, and the presenting part was moving down. So it was decided at that time, since her contractions were occurring every five minutes, to give her uh, augmentation with Pitocin and start GBS prophylaxis. She spontaneously ruptured her membranes about two or three hours after the Pitocin started, clear fluid, and she had changed. Uh, She's now two to three centimeters dilated. She's completely effaced and at zero station. So she's moving along. She's a febrile, blood pressure 120 over 72, pulse 75, and respirations 20. 30 minutes later, after the rupture of membranes, she had a moderate variable deceleration, responded to position change, and she had made some cervical change, now definitely three centimeters. She's up to the bathroom about an hour later, past a large blood clot, and upon exam, she was six centimeters. She requested an epidural at that time for discomfort, blood pressure 111 over 58, pulse 100, and respirations 20. So with a pulse of 100, you always want to investigate what's going on with the pulse. Is the patient in pain? Is she stressed? Um, Are there any medications that have been given that could have resulted in elevation of heart rate? Does she have a fever? And if you can rule out all of those things, then you need to begin to look for cardiovascular or pulmonary compromise. In this case, um, since the patient had requested an epidural, it was felt that, okay, this elevation in heart rate was probably related somewhat to pain management. However, 30 minutes after the epidural was placed, she had a prolonged deceleration down to 60 beats per minute position change was done, and the fetal heart rate was slow to return to baseline. So at this point, it was decided to take her to the OR for a C-section for fetal stress. So 
I want to ask you, how chaotic is a stat C-section in your unit? And if it is chaotic, does that interfere with high reliability? Does everything get done exactly the same way according to standard, according to what your unit has designated as the appropriate way to move quickly from a labor room to an OR? If there is an issue, which of the seven steps might be helpful? First, the lexicon. We talked earlier about having a lexicon to describe the C-section, how quickly it needs to occur. So that's a consideration. Next, how many tasks need to be done? So when you're looking at delegating responsibilities and looking at roles, it helps to have a list of all of the tasks. Can the tasks be clearly organized into roles? And remember, it's important not to have a lot of tasks, maybe two to three tasks per role, because that's easier to remember. We know this from, from human factors research. So if you have definite roles, you may be thinking, yeah, okay, I have like five roles here. I don't have five staff people that can come in. But think about this. Just because someone comes in to perform a task doesn't necessarily mean they have to stay with you forever. So think about people coming in, performing a task of a specific role, and then going back to what they were doing their patient. So people come in, you get ready, whoever is needed to get the patient to the room follows along, other people go back to what they were doing. So the things that come to mind for me are monitors. You may have an IV pump, you may have an epidural pump, your patient may be on oxygen. If she had a prolonged deceleration, she probably is. And I have video footage of a patient going back for a stat C-section with the oxygen mask on and the tubing getting stretched until it ricochets into the back into the bed as the patient moves out of the room. Um, who takes care of the family? Who talks to the family? How many people do you need? What happens when not enough people show up? Here's where you have a problem with high reliability. So think about taking those tasks, putting them into roles, and coming up with a process on your unit that works. Test it in simulation before you roll it out to the staff. There's nothing more frustrating than being taught something new, only to realize that you haven't taken everything into consideration and a few things need to be changed. Obviously, any process is going to be uh, a living thing and it's going to undergo tweaks here, here and there. But simulation can help you get some of that figured out before you train the staff. Next, think about leadership. Who is in charge in that room? Is there no physician in the room and you have to rely on a nurse leader to manage moving the patient out? Or do you have a couple physicians in the room? I know of a situation where you have an obstetrician and an anesthesiologist in the room where they want to go back to do a stat C-section, patient has an epidural, and the anesthesiologist is very concerned about high spinal and wants to assess the patient, whereas the obstetrician just wants to get 
out of the room and get to the OR. So how do you resolve that? How do you resolve that conflict? So that's something that needs to be discussed ahead of time and thought about ahead of time. Let's go back to our patient. Viable infant delivered by cesarean, APGARS of eight and nine, baby goes to newborn nursery and is in good condition. Blood loss for the mom, 500 mLs. Blood pressure, 114 over 39 with a mean arterial pressure of 64. Pulse of 109, respiratory rate 16, and saturation 94%. Now that's as she's exiting the OR. As she gets into the recovery area, and this is on the OB unit, blood pressure is 110 over 40, pulse 100, respiratory rate 24, and saturation 95. So this is the communication the nurse is given. Watch the patient. Vital signs seem to be moving in the right direction. Call if they get worse. So my question, what does worse mean to an experienced nurse versus a new nurse? How do you get a highly reliable response when you don't have specifics? And granted, you're not always going to have specifics, but how do you get a highly reliable response? You can probably get by with being nonspecific with an experienced nurse, but what support does the less experienced nurse need? A couple things I think are really important. As my colleague Suzanne Baird says, vital signs are vital. So if vital signs are vital, think about the components that would help a new nurse. Number one is knowing a way to accurately measure vital signs and then having a tool or a guideline to um, help determine the correct response. So think about respiratory rate and heart rate are two of the most common indicators of deterioration. So the old saying goes, trash in, trash out. So you want to make sure that instead of just looking and getting the vital sign quickly, you take a little bit of time and determine the accurate heart rate and accurate respiratory rate. And this you count for a minute. So you want to count the respiratory rate for a minute with your stethoscope, and you want to count the heart rate for a minute with your stethoscope. Two minutes, it's not a long time, but it's very important to have accurate data. Put the patient in, an, in the position to get an accurate blood pressure. And if you're dealing with potentially anesthesiologists that don't understand the physiologic changes that our, pre our pregnant patients undergo, then using a mean arterial pressure might be the best thing to talk about because that does not change, is not affected by pregnancy. So that puts all the communication on a more level ground. Next, guide the response. So if you have early warning criteria, you know when to call the physician or the midwife and how to frame the conversation. I have um, an elevated heart rate and I'm calling you in response to our process for using our maternal early warning criteria. It can lead to um, more specific criteria for future communication, like when do I call back? Worse, what does worse mean? Use the tool. Um, or 
if you can't get the physician at the bedside, it gives it gives some standard from which to base your actions. Now there are going to be at times controversy. So giving new nurses the um, ability to call other more experienced nurses in or giving new physicians or residents um, the ability to call in people that are more experienced is very important. And it's not, it should not be uh, deemed a failure on their part, but it's part of the learning process that both are undergoing as new practitioners. There are going to be times when there's going to be a difference of opinion. Maybe the nurse thinks the physician should be at the bedside. The physician says, no, I'm not coming. In this case, it's going to be important to understand what chain of command is. And when chain of command is going to be utilized, it is critically important that the person who is the primary responsibility for, who has primary responsibility for that patient understands that the nurse is going to go up the chain of command. It is disastrous to go up the chain of command behind someone's back disastrous. That does not build team cohesion. So if you're going to go and as a nurse, if you're going to utilize chain of command, be sure that you, if you have any doubt at all, you've talked it over with another colleague, a nurse, and then let that person know that you are going up the chain of command and you're going up for this specific reason and you've discussed it with this person. That's, that's the correct thing to do and will build your team, not uh, destroy cohesion. Back to our patient. She is in the recovery room, and over the next 30 minutes, her blood pressure drops um, diastolic to 35. Systolic is 110. Her heart rate is now up to 110. Her respiratory rate is 24, and her saturation is still 96. However, She's got a firm fundus at the umbilicus and large amount of bleeding with clots. So the Pitocin IV is increased in volume. A second agent is given about 15 minutes later. Uterine packing is placed. Second IV is started. And a third uterotonic agent is given. Nothing is stopping her bleeding. She is still having a large amount of vaginal bleeding. So when you're instituting something like a hemorrhage checklist, how can you utilize the seven steps? So number one, think about the lexicon. How do you get help and get the right people in the room with the right skills and the right supplies? I have actually analyzed video in a hemorrhage where the nurse has spent up to two minutes calling people in the room. If the patient is bleeding at 500 milliliters per minute and it's taking two minutes just to get people in the room, that patient has been moved to the next level of hemorrhage. So think about how do you quickly get people in the room? And it may be that you have an OBRRT hemorrhage room five. It may be that simple. But think about a lexicon. And when you say OBRRT hemorrhage, that means bring the meds, bring the hemorrhage cart, and it may even signal other people in the team, we need the anesthesiologists there. 
So consider having a lexicon that requires certain things to happen when it's announced. Leadership. How many things is a physician doing with a patient who is bleeding despite everything you're doing? That is a physician's worst nightmare. So just utilizing a nurse leader to manage the room can help relieve the cognitive load so the patient can concentrate, so the physician can concentrate on the patient. The checklist, crucial here. When people are, are coming in, when you can easily look at what's not being done and assign, look at a quick list, make sure everything on the list is being done so that people aren't forgetting something or spending their time duplicating what's already been done. So think about roles. Think about setting up your room around the geography of the patient's bed so that you have the supplies you need, whether that's located in the room or it's a separate cart, whatever it is that's going to work the best for your unit so that people around the bed can work as effectively and as efficiently as possible. This produces reliability because it it decreases disorganization, it decreases chaos. Think about communication. If you've got more than one leader in the room, are they on the same page? Do you need to have a recap? What are the next steps? Are we ready for the next steps? So communication can help with all of these aspects of reliability. Back to our patient. Within 10 minutes, her blood pressure is 93 over 64. So it's like, oh, how did her diastolic go up? She's got a narrowing pulse pressure, which tends to happen when people are losing volume. Her um, heart rate is now well above 110, saturation 81%, and she's vomiting. So in less than 45 minutes from when the bleeding was first noted, this is the point that they're at, and they need to go back to the OR. So in your unit, where is the best place to go next? Is that the main OR? Is that back to the OR in your OB unit? Do you need other people there? Possibly GYN oncologist? Who do you call? How do you call? And while the checklist is not a how-to, if there is a specific process that can be quickly delineated on the checklist that is very uh, specific to your unit, it needs to be on your checklist. So this patient ends up going to the main OR. Um, they try everything to get the bleeding stopped and finally end up doing a total abdominal hysterectomy. She gets 20 units of pack cells, 18 units of fresh frozen plasma, 29 units of cryoprecipitate, and a three-pack of platelets in the OR. Following surgery, she's taken to the intensive care unit, intubated on a ventilator. Just look at her lab findings. One hour postpartum, her hematocrit was 9.9 and her hemoglobin was 3.3. Her platelets were under 100,000, and her fibrinogen was 30. Fortunately, this patient did very well. She was home, uh, or actually to the postpartum unit, on post-op day three. She spent a couple days in, in postpartum and went home 
in satisfactory condition on post-op day five. Severe obstetric hemorrhage is a frightening event. We have all been there, and I have no doubt everyone does their best for the patient. The circumstances we work in, however, may or may not set us up to be as as efficient as we could be. Structure is not always bad. The seven steps we discussed today provide structure for teams to recognize, then quickly and reliably provide a consistent level of care for the patient that is proactive. You'll notice that none of the seven steps were writing guidelines or protocols. I think from our discussion today, you can see that achieving high reliability is much more than writing a document. It's putting that document into practice and figuring out the processes that support that document. Wherever your unit is on the path to high reliability, I hope one or more of the seven steps we talked about today will help you move your unit closer to highly reliable patient care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, on Twitter at, C- at, excuse me, at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send us a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. For a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app at qxmd.com apps or our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Bear. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.